I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. What is Celebrity Memoir Book Club? A place where two bitches are bitchin'. So if you're looking for a good, kind time, feel free to look elsewhere. I'll tell you what, the internet is big. It's vast. There's a lot out there. And what you're looking for probably exists. And if it doesn't, it's free to make it. But if you like what you're finding here, baby, we're happy to have you. And this week, I want to thank Dipsy for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories. If you're looking to light a spark or heat things up, there's a story waiting for you. Get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. Claire. Yes. What's the story of your life? Okay, I'm calling my chapter this week, The Rebuilding Era. Sure. (laughs) As you guys know, I went through a friendship breakup in the spring that really uh, rocked my socks off, fucked me up pretty bad. I've had a hard spring because of it emotionally. And I had like a very cathartic conversation with an old friend last night that did just make me feel a lot better about the situation. Like, obviously I'm still sad about it, but I feel like I've really come to terms with the fact that people grow up, they change, things happen. And all you can kind of do is learn and grow and try to be better next time. And I feel like I'm really doing a good job of getting out there socially and meeting a lot of new people. I am following up on drinks. I am getting the coffee. If you DM me and say we should meet up, but we're going to meet up, baby. So do not threaten me. (laughs) Don't threaten me with a good time. One of those things is like much harder to do than you'd think. It really is. So I'm just feeling better about myself. I kind of feel like, you know what? Chapters close. It's okay. Things happen. But I'm opening my heart up to new possibilities. And that's it. Beautiful. Ashley, yes. if you were to name the chapter of your week last week, what would you call it? Okay, this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I do want to just call it whatever I called last week, part two, because I did start like 18 different things on a sort of a re-evaluation journey of myself. And I think it's a high standard to hold myself to, to say, wow, after the eight checkpoints on last week's list to add more things, I feel like this week has really been just furthering last week's goals. I started therapy this week, which was huge huge for me. Yesterday evening when I was being very cunty, I do think that not to you, but just like about things and in tech. I was trying to think, I was like, did we fight last night? (laughs) It all blurs into a memory. I was like at a show where I was grumpy and I did realize it was because I had therapy for the first time and it did like emotionally kind of knock my side off. And so then for the rest of the day, when I was like, why am I this tired? I didn't do that much today. But then I realized I had an emotionally sleepy day. For those of you guys who aren't on the Patreon, I started a whole list of things that I'm trying to do, including way less drinking, which I've been accomplishing, more writing, which I've been not as good on. So there's there's a list. We're growing, we're changing, we're evolving, we're bettering. It's a lot of self-bettering. I feel like this week was hard because I kept sort of being like, well, it's been over a week of my very specific life changes. Why am I not seeing extraordinary results? And then I had to be like, Ashley, it's a lifestyle. It's a marathon. You got to keep chugging away. Well, I'm proud of you and I'm really excited for you. Thank you. Speaking of chugging away. Yeah. And life is a marathon and not a sprint and therapy. (laughs) And it's never too late to change your ways and establish better habits. This week, we have the world premiere of I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. This is a book that we were really excited to get our hands on. We enlisted the worms to help us get an advanced copy. Yeah. So thank you to you guys because of you. And then also, I will say small shout out to my brother's girlfriend who actually just on a whim went, I feel like Kaya would know Jeanette. And I was like, Kaya, do you know Jeanette? And she was like, yeah. 
<laughs> we were friends in LA. And I was like, will you DM her for us? And she did. So I do think it was a two pronged attack and we are so grateful yeah. for you guys. And Even also three, four prongs. We were really, we were coming at her with spears. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are not going to come at her with spears today because we have a beautiful, vulnerable tale for you. It is out today. So today this book launches to the world. It launches into our souls. And I guess let's dive in. So Jeanette McCurdy was born June 26th, 1992. So she's 30 years old at time of today, which is the time of publishing. It's the time. So she starts off with a banger of a prologue. This prologue, I was like, you can tell that she performed this show live. I think Carrie Fisher, her book was previously a one woman show. Tiffany Haddish performs a lot of her book as stand up. This book, you can really hear what was worked out in the moment. So she starts it off with, it's strange how we always give big news to loved ones in a coma as if a coma is just a thing that happens from lack of something to be excited about in your life. And so she talks about how when her mom was in the ICU with cancer, everyone in her family would go up to her and be like, mom, I'm getting married. Mom, I'm moving back to California. And now it's my turn. I wait until everyone else goes down to grab some food so that I can be alone with her. I pull the squeaky chair close to her bed and sit down. I smile. I'm about to bring the big guns. Forget weddings, forget moving home. I've got something more important to offer, something I'm sure mom cares about more than anything. Mommy, I am so skinny right now. I'm finally down to 89 pounds. My life purpose has always been to make mom happy, to be who she wants me to be. So without mom, who am I supposed to be now? So then this book is divided into two sections. It's before and after. And it is told in one to two page vignettes that kind of give you snapshots of her life that are chronological and I think are very effective. I really like this book. It took me a couple of them to get into it, but at some point it hits the pace where I like couldn't put it down. I found it extremely compelling. I actually find these short chapters really easy to get through because I think that even when you're not that interested in one specific little vignette, because they're so short and snappy, it really brings it back around quickly. And you're like, I understood the point of this. And I know that something big is coming next. So she starts off with a picture of her childhood where it is very clear that her and her mom were extremely close, that her life's mission as a little girl was to worship her mom and make her mom happy. So she mentions several times throughout this book that she and her mom were best friends. She says, my mom was my best friend. I was her best friend. We completed each other. She is so proud of how connected and in sync they were throughout her childhood. And then the other key thing of her childhood was that her mom had survived stage four cancer. Mom was first diagnosed with stage four breast cancer when I was two years old. I hardly remember it, but there are a few flashes. But then she says it's brought up constantly in their life. She said, mom reminisces about cancer the way most people reminisce about vacations. She even goes so far as to MC a weekly rewatch of a home video she made shortly after learning of her diagnosis. Every Sunday after church, she has one of the boys pop in the VHS tape VCR. And then they just rewatch this video where the mom essentially has just found out she has cancer and is telling the family what to do should she die and how afraid she is of death and how much she loves them. So this chapter is written around one of Jeanette's birthdays. And the way it ends is by her revealing what her birthday wish is this year and every year. She says, finally, the happy birthday song is over. The time has come. My big moment. I shut my eyes and take a deep breath while I make my wish in my head. I wish that mom will stay alive another year. The fragility of mom's life is the center of mine. So she paints a larger picture about her overall family. Their situation is... They live in a house that is owned by her dad's parents, but they still have to pay rent to live in. And after the cancer diagnosis, her mother's parents moved into the house with them and just never moved out. So in this home, it's her, her mom and her dad, her three older siblings, the oldest of which is 15 years older than her, and then two middle boys, 
her and then the two grandparents. And it is chaotic in there. She talks about how her mom, her mom is a full on hoarder. It's so bad that the children's rooms are so full of stuff that they all sleep on like a trifold gymnastics pad in the living room. Yeah, that's where all of them, including the mother sleep. The father sleeps in like a little human sized cutout on the bed in the parents' bedroom. The grandparents sleep on a couch in her old childhood room. And that's just how they grow up. It's very tumultuous. They were homeschooled. So they spent a lot of time in this house that caused her like extreme stress. Yeah, they were Mormon, homeschooled. It doesn't seem like she had any friends or any experiences with anyone outside. And she does talk about constantly how her mom doesn't have any friends. They are each other's best friends, even when she's three years old. So she has this memory of being young. Her mom is doing her hair and telling the story for however many times that her mom always wanted to be an actress, but her parents wouldn't let her. She says, I want to give you the life I never had. I want to give you the life I deserved, the life my parents wouldn't let me have. Okay, I'm nervous thinking about what's coming next. I think you should act. I think you would be a great little actress. Blonde, blue-eyed, you're what they love in that town. So what do you say? You want to act? You want to be mommy's little actress? There's only one right answer. So now we get into stories that depict the fear that was always underneath Jeanette's obsession with her mom. I mean, she loved her mom when you're little. Your mom is the only person in the world. She adores her mom, but she also took very personally the responsibility of making sure her mom was happy. Yeah. So she talks about how she felt like she could not have any say in her life that would tell her mom she was different than what her mom wanted to be. Yeah. And her mom would paint a lot of things very specifically for Jeanette. So her mom was like pretty afraid of driving on freeways, but because she was obsessed with making Jeanette an actress, she would drive her obviously to auditions in Los Angeles. They lived about an hour to an hour and a half away. And she'd be like, I'm getting over my fears for you. I'm doing this for you. And you have these little moments, like one time after a callback, she takes Jeanette to get ice cream and Jeanette wants to get cookies and cream. And her mom says, don't you want nutty coconut? And she's like, no, I actually want cookies and cream. But her mom turns around alarmed. You don't want nutty coconut? I'm frozen. I don't know what to say. Mom seems upset that I haven't chosen nutty coconut. I pause waiting to see how she reacts before making my next move. There's a beat where we're both just standing at the ice cream counter looking at each other instead of at the ice cream. Then mom's posture softens and her eyes well with tears. Never mind. I want nutty coconut. You sure? Positive. I nod. Everything she does, she freezes. She watches her mom. She takes it in and she responds based on her mom's reaction. Yeah. It seems like her mom has absolute control over what she wears, what her favorite colors are. And she knows not to ever fight back. She knows to take on whatever her mom's favorite things are to do. It's also clear that Jeanette hates acting. The very first time she goes to audition for something, the casting agents take her mom aside and say, hey, if she doesn't want to do this, she's never going to be successful at this. And the mom is like, she wants to do this. Jeanette's like, I absolutely do not want to do it. I hated it. It made me uncomfortable. I even tried to tell her it made me uncomfortable, but my mom just wouldn't hear it. So Jeanette never wanted this at all. So when she finally gets the opportunity to audition for like a slightly bigger agent or manager, she doesn't do well. The mom has to call and be like, no, you do want her. Trust me, you want her. Like she was nervous in that audition, but trust me, she's going to be great. And the agent is like, you know what? Fine. I'll take her if she takes acting class. So she has to take an acting class, which she hates. The mom would constantly play the cancer card. She'd be like, shouldn't you give my daughter a callback? I had cancer. She tells a story later about the agent is like, you have to go take acting classes. And the acting teacher doesn't allow parents in the room. And her mom goes, well, I can't go anywhere else. I have cancer. I have to sit. And so she's the only parent present. Jeanette literally never gets an hour away from her mother. Her mother is always watching and making sure she's behaving exactly as the mom wants her to. She does a really good job of illustrating the confusion in her head of following the directions of the adult in charge and her mom. So in acting classes, she says her mom would just be sitting exactly where she could see her, sort of coaching her with her eyes, mouthing the words. And then the teacher would say something different and she wouldn't want to disappoint her mom, but she also didn't want to do bad in class because doing bad in class would disappoint her mom. 
So it's yeah. this constant back and forth in her head of like, who am I supposed to listen to right now? And for what? So she does a really good job of slowly like drip by drip painting this picture of her mom and her, obviously having a codependent relationship, but like her mom just being extremely overbearing and kind of a narcissist. I mean, but just very I mean, a literal narcissist. Very controlling. And then she also gets more into the details of what her home life was like. The mother and the dad always fought if they were speaking at all. Most of the time, I think they were like ships in the night, but her mom was always complaining that her dad was a lazy nothing, that he made no money. He didn't support anybody, that he was an absentee father. She's always throwing him out of the house. She tells the story... I don't need help. You need help. She screams, runs into the kitchen. Dad starts taking off his shoes, thinking dumbly that maybe it's over. Maybe mom's mood has shifted and she's back to normal. How could he not know? How can he never know? One, two, three. I count my head. Less than 10 seconds before she comes back. Four, five, six, seven. She's back and carrying a kitchen knife. The one that grandpa uses to chop her vegetables every night. Get out of my house. She yells, get out. The last time mom forced dad to sleep in his car for a few months back. Typically he's kicked out about once a week or so. And with good reason. Mom says he doesn't help the family enough. He's always late from work. He's probably cheating. He's not interested in his children. He's an absentee father, etc. The fact that he's gone by this long without getting kicked out is a miracle. He should just be grateful. We also see that the dad is just not involved. I mean, he's yeah. just there. He's just taking it. They don't sleep in the same room. The only time we see her dad pop up throughout her childhood, she has one good memory of like going on bike rides to dance class with him. I think it was like once. <laughs> yeah, going on a bike ride to a dance class with him. And then everything else, she's like, he spelled my name wrong on a birthday card. And it was a birthday card she was grateful to get. She couldn't yeah. believe he had showed up to a birthday party of hers. One time he took her to his work event. He worked at Home Depot and Hollywood Video. And she got to go to the Christmas party and she was so excited. And then she later found out her mom had insisted she go because she wanted Jeanette, who was like six or seven or eight at this point, to do recon to see if he was cheating with anybody from work. So now we also have at this point a couple of really shocking developments about the mom. First of all, Jeanette talks about an early role as a background actor where she ends up getting upgraded to principal actor. And within this story is embedded a little nugget that she goes to the bathroom on set. I think she's eight years old at the time. Sorry, I say while I poop because she had been told don't ever go to the bathroom because then you'll be seen as difficult on set and they only want to work with easy to work with children. Yeah. So she is like so apologetic that at eight years old, she has to go to the bathroom. And mom wets a paper towel with water. I'm embarrassed she still insists on wiping my butt. I tried to tell her recently that now that I'm eight, I think I can handle it but she looked like she was going to cry and, and said that she needs to do it until I'm at least 10 because she doesn't want skid marks on my Pocahontas underwear. I know if I did it, there wouldn't be skid marks, but it's mom's tears I'm more worried about. So now we're in the weeds with auditioning and with every audition, with every rejection, the mom will just take a whole left turn and a swing in a new direction. So at one audition, the feedback they got was that Jeanette was not pretty enough. So then they start spending hours each week doing like a maintenance trip to CVS where they would whiten Jeanette's teeth, dye her eyelashes. At one audition, it turns out she had to dance and Jeanette wasn't a good dancer. So the mom signs her up for 14 dance classes a week. She's spending hours a week in dance class. At one audition, they like whip out a pogo stick and they're like, for this role, you would need to be on a pogo stick. Jeanette doesn't know how to pogo stick. So the mom does not let her stop practicing pogo sticking until she can do a thousand jumps consecutively just in case pogo sticks ever come up again. Meanwhile... Jeanette still hates acting. She says, I don't like sitting on the little studio stage, acting out a scene in front of everybody. I don't like to be observed. I like to do the observing. And at this point, Jeanette also developed symptoms of OCD. And she thinks that it's religion. So they're also churchgoers. Jeanette's the only one who actually likes it. They just kind of go. I don't really know why, but she's always hustling the family out of the house to make sure they get the maximal time at church because that is their only time a week because they're homeschooled. 
that they're not in their oppressive, scary, messy home. She really depicts how much she internalized trying to control her mother's mood swings. So she talks about trying to get everybody ready to go to church on time. And one of the sons spills a little bit of milk. So she's like running, trying to clean it up. She's so scared. She knows that there's milk on the ground. Her mom will have a tantrum. She's banging on the bathroom door because her grandma's in there on the phone with a friend. And she's like, she needs to get out so that everyone can brush their teeth. And she says to her grandma, she's like, we need to get in here. And her grandma on the phone goes, she hates me. Why does she hate me so much? It just is like everyone in that family is so crazy. I think she has a little bit of normalcy with her grandpa, but her mom's mom is also like extremely manipulative and verbally abusive, verbally abusive, having temper tantrums and always accusing like a six-year-old Jeanette of hating her and being mean to her and not liking her enough. So it's a really chaotic home. And Jeanette takes full responsibility for keeping her mom happy. And she can't believe that nobody else can read her mom the way she can. So she has this sort of religious background. And then she starts hearing a voice in her head that's making her do all these random things. One day she's at an audition for something called Princess Paradise Park, which she was told could change her life. It was her and another girl were up for it. And I was like, I've never heard of this. And then it turns out, of course, it didn't even get made. Yeah. But she was under the impression that this was going to be the big break moment. And she hears in her head, the Holy Ghost say, to ensure that you do well at Princess Paradise Park callback, if you do what I tell you to do, you will eventually book the role. When this happens, your mother will be happy and all of your problems will be solved. I, the spirit of the Holy Ghost, command you to cross your name out on the sign-in sheet, go to the restroom, touch your underwear band five times in a row, twirl on one foot, unlock and relock the bathroom door five times, come back and re-sign in on the sign-in sheet. And so she believed it was the Holy Ghost because apparently in Mormonism, you're told around this age, you're going to start hearing the Holy Ghost in your head. So she just assumes the Holy Ghost is talking to her. And for the next several years, she has all these little rituals that everyone just kind of brushes off as Jeanette's rituals. And in her mind, they're her communications with the Holy Ghost. Only her grandpa is like, I think she has OCD. And her mom says, she does not. Jeanette's perfect. All right. She does not need help. And so then she overhears this conversation and she says, Holy Ghost, I ask internally, are you Holy Ghost or are you OCD? Of course, I'm the Holy Ghost. This still small voice answers back in my mind. So that settles it. She's very like, well, I don't know. I'm eight. <laughs> and she just talks about this auditioning process. I guess she had started when she was six and she's just hacking away at it and hacking away at it. She talks about going to auditions when she has an 140 degree fever because her mom is like, you don't want to seem flaky. It's really all her mom cares about. And then finally, she develops a very specific and special skill. She learns to cry on command. And it changes her career. She becomes the crying girl whenever they need someone who can cry on command. She's their go-to gal. She is great at it. She becomes notorious for being able to do it. And people are calling her agent and manager being like, we need that cry girl. And so she talks about going to one audition and crying on command. Wow. The casting director said as soon as I was finished... I mean, you have the part, but I kind of want to see you do it again, just to see it again. And so I did it again. I'd become the Cirque du Soleil performer of Crying on Cue. People wanted to see me do it over and over. Like I was climbing silks or contorting into aerial hoops. Crying on Cue was truly my special skill. And she talks about how what she does is she like imagines horrible things happening to her brothers because she says, even though the obvious choice would be to imagine something happening to her mom, she feels that that could happen because of the cancer. She says... Even though she's been in remission for years, her health is still fragile enough that I don't want to jinx anything since her life is in my hands with my annual birthday wish. That's a responsibility I don't take lightly and one I would never want to undermine for the sake of a teary monologue. And so she develops this reputation and she starts getting booked on everything and all of the child actor type stuff. So she's on CSI Miami. She's on Law & Order. She's on... Maybe she was on a long run, but you know, I mean, all of those kind of procedurals, network television shows, she's in all of them. And she has a couple of really bountiful years of getting cast as the girl who murders her friend, getting cast as the girl who gets kidnapped, getting cast as the girl who's getting assaulted. And one day at an audition, she just can't 
cry anymore. She like just doesn't want to. She knows going in. She's like, I'm just not going to be able to go there. I don't want to do it. And she's sick of it. And her mom's like, of course you can. And she goes and she doesn't cry. She doesn't get the role. On the way home in bumper to bumper traffic on the 101 South, I'm sitting with my booster seat since I'm still small enough to be required to sit in it. She's just in a booster seat. I don't know until when. At 14 years old, she's in a booster seat. I'm trying to work on my history homework and I'm unable to focus because I'm too upset at myself over the audition. I was in my head during it because that scary part of me decided to try and speak up. The part of me that doesn't want to be doing this. I don't want to act anymore, I say, before I even realize I've said it. Mom looks at me in the rear view mirror. A mixture of shock and disappointment fills her eyes. I immediately regret saying anything. Don't be silly. You love acting. It's your favorite thing in the world, Mom says, in a way that makes it sound like a threat. I look out the window. The part of me that wants to please her thinks maybe she's right. Maybe it is my favorite thing and I just don't know it. I just don't realize it. But the part of me that doesn't want to cry on cue, that doesn't want to act, that doesn't want to care about pleasing mom and just wants to please me, that part of me screams to speak up. My face gets hot, compelling me to say something. No, I really don't want to. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. Mom's face looks like she just ate a lemon. It contorts in a way that terrifies me. I know it's coming next. You can't quit. She sobs. This was our chance. This was our chance. She bangs on the steering wheel, accidentally hitting the horn. Mascara trickles down her cheeks. She's hysterical. Her hysteria frightens me and demands to be taken care of. Never mind. I say loudly. Her crying stops immediately. So she doesn't want to be there. It's just very interesting because I wonder how many other child actors have a very similar story, but because she is being manipulated into then saying out loud, no, I actually want this. Yes, I want to be an actor. Yes, I want to be whatever. I wonder how many child actors have a similar story that have convinced themselves that like the things they were saying out loud were the truth and the things they were feeling were not the truth. Mm -hmm. Because every child actor story we read, they talk about how I wanted this. I wanted to be an actor and my parents made sacrifices for me. Jeanette's mom makes endless statements about the sacrifices she's making to make Jeanette's dreams come true. And I wonder how often this exact story happens, but they just have to believe the top line narrative. Yeah. And because I'm sure if you had asked Jeanette's mom to the day she died, why did Jeanette get an acting? And she begged, she begged me. It's all she wanted. It was her dream since the time she was born. So then one day her mom is in the hospital for a little bit and Jeanette writes a screenplay. It turns out that her mom is always having health problems, not necessarily cancer related, but she seems to be in and out of the hospital constantly. Yeah. So after about in the hospital for about a week or so, while she's there, Jeanette writes a full screenplay and she's so excited to bring it to her mom while her mom's in the hospital. And her mom's like, why are you writing? You're an actress. She looks sad. And finally, Jeanette's like, well, what's wrong? She goes, it's just, I hope you don't like writing more than you like acting. You're so good at acting. So good at it. And Jeanette's like, of course, I don't like writing more than acting. I could never. And on her way out, she says, well, good. Writers dress frumpy and get fat. You know, I would never want your little actress peach butt to turn into a big, giant writer's watermelon butt. Duly noted, me writing makes mom unhappy. Me acting makes mom happy. So at this point, Jeanette's like 11, 12, I guess, 12, 13. And as she would be, she's going through puberty. So she, because of the cancer history in her family, she feels like a bump on her chest. And it's like, this is cancer. And she says she wants to run up to her mom and like tell her immediately. Of course, she's freaking out, but her mom's asleep. And she goes, this can't be happening. First mom and now me, the room starts spinning. I weigh my options. I can go wake mom and tell her now, but that seems burdensome. Or I can let her sleep until 11 a.m. when I usually wake her up with her morning cup of tea. I'd wake up earlier if I wasn't up so late stressing about money, mom always said. Maybe if your father got a job that paid the bills for once, so I wouldn't have to depend on a child. Which, as you'll see, that is not the main part of this story. Mm -hmm. But as just a throwaway note, the fact that one, her mom is sleeping till 11 a.m. and it's Jeanette's job to wake her up and get her breakfast. Yeah. And then two, the idea that like, she's like, I have to depend on the child. No, you could have gotten a job. Her mom had gone to beauty school. Her mom could have gone and worked at a salon and made money. If it was a money problem, right? <laughs> she was more than capable of getting a job. But anyway, 
So she goes up and tells her mom and her mom says, oh, sweetie, mom half laughs as she runs her fingers back and forth along my puffy lumped nipple on the right and then over my smooth flat nipple on the left. That's not cancer. Then what is it? You're just getting boobies. Oh no, the only thing worse than a cancer diagnosis is a growing up diagnosis. I was horrified of growing up. She says, if I start to grow up, mom won't love me as much. She's absolutely panicked about the idea of growing up. She says that her mom often weeps and holds me really tight and says she just wants me to stay small and young. It breaks my heart when she does this. I wish I could stop time. I wish I could stay a child. I feel guilty that I can't. I feel guilty with every inch I grow. I feel guilty whenever I see one of my aunts or uncles and they comment on how much I'm growing up. I'm determined not to grow up. I'll do anything to stop it from happening. And she also is scared that she won't get roles. Her mom is always talking about what an advantage it is that she's so tiny and can play a six or seven year old, even though she's 11, 12. Yeah. So she's petrified of growing up. She doesn't know what to do. So she talks to her mom about it. And her mom says, well, sweetheart, if you really want to know how to stay small, there's something you can do. It's called calorie restriction. And her mom from this point forward is her coach in maintaining anorexia. It becomes a thing that they start bonding over. Her mom only has a hot tea every morning for breakfast, nothing in it, and a plate of steamed vegetables every night for dinner, nothing on them. I rarely see her eat lunch. And if she does, it's a salad with no dressing or half of a chocolate chip chewy granola bar. She goes, I'm in good hands. I start shrinking by the week as mom and I team up to counter calories every night and plan out our meals for the next day. We're keeping a 1000 calorie diet. But I have the smart idea that if I only eat half my food, I'll only be receiving half the calories. She's weighing herself every single day with her mom. Each Sunday, she weighs me, measures my thighs with the measuring tape. And after a few weeks of our routine, she provides me with a stack of diet books that I finish quickly. And then she goes to the doctor and she's petrified to get weighed at the doctor because she's afraid the scale will be off. And it is. She ends up at the doctor's office weighing two pounds more than she weighed at home, according to their scales. And she's so upset about it. She's so nervous for her mom's reaction. And the doctor takes the mom aside and says, I'm worried Jeanette is anorexic. And Jeanette hears and kind of wonders about it. And she'd never heard the word before. Yeah, a few weeks later at Jan's class, another mother takes Jeanette's mother aside and says, hey, I just want to let you know, like, we're worried about Jeanette. There is a specialist that another one of the mothers took her daughter to if you want to go. And Jeanette's mother screams in her face and like drives off. And when Jeanette asks about anorexia, she says, don't worry about it, Angel. People are just being dramatic. The one thing she loved was going to church. And the more successful she got, the less they started going. People at church judged her mom for letting her be in these explicit TV shows. And so they kind of stopped going, which breaks her heart. And then she hits us with this chapter. This is, I suppose, the most harrowing reveal, but it's hard to rank them. It's hard to rank them. So she's talking about shower time and how she dreads shower time. And you're just like, oh yeah, kids hate showers. And for Jeanette, it's because her mom insists on showering her. She says that her mom insists on showering her so she can shampoo and condition her hair because she doesn't think Jeanette will do it right. But she also showers the older brother, Scotty, who she says gets showered by the mother up until at least the age of 16. And sometimes together. Yeah, if her mom's in a rush, she showers the siblings together. And she's like, we both feel a lot of shame. One time Scott asked if he could shower himself. Mom sobbed and said she didn't want him to grow up. So he never asked again after that. And in addition to being showered with her teenage brother, she says, whether or not Scott's there with me, Mom gives me a breasts and front butt exam, which is what she calls my private parts. She says she wants to make sure that I don't have any mysterious lumps or bumps because those could be cancer. I say, okay, because I definitely don't want cancer. And since mom's had it and all, she would know if I do. I usually just try to think of Disneyland when mom is doing the exams. I think of the next time grandpa will sign us in. By the time the exams are done, a huge wave of relief washes over my body. And I usually realize it's the first time I've felt my body since the exam started. It's weird. When the exams are happening, I feel like I'm outside of myself. Like my body is a shell and I'm disconnected from and I'm living entirely in my thoughts. And so we were talking about honestly how this was happening so late into their lives. And I do think it has a lot to do with the homeschooling and like they don't know a lot of other kids. 
Yeah, it seems like they're completely closed off. She has no other friends. Her dad isn't really involved. It seems like her grandma is a crazy person. And it seems like her grandpa feels very incapable of making change, even though he notices that it's bad. He'll be like, a child shouldn't be supporting the family. You should get to be a kid. That's the thing is she really gives the grandpa a lot of credit for saying something, but it doesn't feel like his words had any effect. But so now I feel like at this point, to tell your 11-year-old daughter, we're going to get you on a diet so that your body never goes through puberty, to be giving her breast and vaginal exams every time she showers her, to be showering your 6 year olds I'm like, oh, so this is... An absolutely crazy, horrible, abusive woman. Yeah. And then she gets iCarly. So when she was 14 years old, still in a booster seat, they get the call that she has been cast in iCarly. And I think meeting Miranda Cosgrove, I think this was her first ever friend that was her age that she ever had because her only friends, the only people she knew that were her age were from church, which were people she saw once a week and in very limited quality time. And also they look down on her. At church, she's considered a second class Mormon. Yeah. Because they didn't go that often and they weren't that serious about it. So I don't think she had a ton of friends there. Right. And then the other people she meets her age are in audition rooms. And she says very specifically, like her relationship with Miranda Cosgrove was special because she had never met a fellow child actor that she wasn't competitive with. Like no one had ever been nice to her. She hadn't formed a bond with anyone. They would always just kind of see each other auditioning, be like, you're the competition. I fucking hate you. Goodbye. And then I also think her relationship with Miranda Cosgrove really developed. She says that they didn't really get to talk that much on set, but they like did AIM chat every night. And so she would, they like really bonded being able to go home and AIMs. The celebrities, they're just like us. I was like, wow, what if you had accidentally stumbled upon Jeanette McCurdy's AIM? That would have been cool. So then she gets into working on iCarly and she doesn't talk a lot, but she opens on the scene of being in wardrobe and standing behind a curtain. And obviously she has a lot of shame around her body, specifically of her body going through puberty. And she's like, I don't want to come out. I don't want to come out. I hate this. I want to be done with this wardrobe fitting. I asked if I could please just try on a one piece with board shorts the way that I feel most comfortable in a bathing suit being covered up. But our wardrobe designer said that the creator explicitly asked for bikinis. And so she had to have me try on one or two of them. So he had the option. She exclusively refers to Dan Snyder as the creator. And I do think the way this book is written, it is a very tactical way to have written a book emotionally explaining the abuse without walking herself into a legal trap. What she does tell is a nod to all of the rumors we've heard that Dan Schneider did abuse the girls on his show, that he was obsessed with them, that he was also just a maniac and an abusive boss. But she doesn't say anything explicit, but we will obviously share with you guys everything she does say. But yes. I guess I want to say, without accusing her of having suffered anything more horrible than she cops to, I do think the way she talks about it, which is what Ashley was saying, could suggest more. I think she gives you just enough to nod and say, everything you've heard and more. It was bad. Here are some things that I can show you that confirm the rumors to an, a degree that allows you to assume what else happened. Yes. So as we can see here from this wardrobe fitting, everyone on set is an agent at his disposal. She even says later, even though they hire various directors for the show, Dan Snyder is controlling everything, every move, every outfit. He sits on set and makes every decision. I also do think now that we're talking about it again, I hesitated to be like more happened than she admits to because... The book is so honest and she gets into so many details about her mom and like the abuse that she underwent with her mom. But I'm like, well, her mom is literally dead. Yeah. And when you think about when she gets into dating, she switches a lot of names for everybody she's dated. I realized, and I don't want to get into it really because she doesn't get into the book, but she does not talk about like her nudes were leaked at one point. She never talks about that, which I think is her right. And I'm proud of her for making the decision to be like, I'm going to reclaim that narrative by ignoring the narrative. But when I realized that I was like, okay, there is a lot that got left out of this book. 
it's not that she gave us every detail of everything is that she was able to be honest about her mom because her mom is dead and cannot sue her anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I also think like you were saying earlier, this is like a heavily therapized book. And I think she started going to therapy around like 25, 26. Mm-hmm. She's currently 30. So that means we're a few years in. There's probably other stuff that's like for later. Yeah, I'm sure she's talked in therapy about what Dan Schneider did to her. I do think right. there's just only so much you can say in a book if you're not willing to go to court over it. And I don't think she wants to go to court over it. Well, that's what I meant is I think this book is like a very delicate yeah. illustration of like these things happened. You're right. But she can only say so much without walking into a very dangerous zone for herself. Like she has to protect herself. So she gets into scenes from being on set. She talks about having her first kiss on camera. I think she's 15 or 16 at this point. Move your head around a bit more, Jeanette. The creator yells from off camera. I try to do as the creator tells me. I honestly try, but I can't bring myself to do it. He gets over and he just screams at her face. She talks about how odd it is to have to kiss on camera. The creator storms off, heading to Crafty for his chips or his bagel or his minestrone soup. I watch him go. I'm sad I didn't please him. She says, I feel like the creator has two distinct sides. One is generous and over-the-top complimentary. The other is mean-spirited, controlling, and terrifying. I've seen the creator make grown men and women cry with his insults and degradation. He'll call people idiots, buffoons, stupid, dumb, sloppy, careless, R-word, and spineless. The creator knows how to make someone feel worthless. I feel that I always need to be on guard around him, catering to him emotionally. I feel similarly around the creator as I feel around my mom. On edge, desperate to please, terrified of stepping in a line. So now she's at this dinner with the creator and her mom, two people that she's petrified of. And he's buying them all this food, showering her with compliments. She doesn't know how much to eat because she doesn't want to make her mom upset, but she doesn't want to insult him by not eating the food he's buying. And he says that he would like to work with her for a spinoff. It'd be called Just Puckett based on this character, Sam Puckett. And he says, well, you'll have to wait a couple of years, the creator reiterates. But if you keep doing what you're doing and listen to me, take my advice and let me guide you. I promise I'll give you your own show. Oh, thank you, mom says, tears welling in her eyes. My baby deserves it. She deserves it. Mom looks over at me and nods, urging me to smile with teeth. So I do, even though I'm concerned. The creator was very clear that his offer had a contingent, me listening to him, taking his advice and letting him guide me. And even though a part of me appreciates the creator, a part of me is scared of him. And the idea that I'll have to do everything he wants is intimidating to me. Why don't you seem happier? You're getting your own show, mom says on our drive home. I am happy, I lie. Very happy. Good, mom says, as she glances at me in the rearview mirror. Because you should be. Everyone wants what you have. Can I say, this book does a really fucking good job of making you not want that shit at all. <laughs> I will say, no offense, but if there's a single listener of this podcast who still makes their kid a child star... I agree with you. <laughs> I've got a fucking little target on your back. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be my new thing, is just making blanket threats every I did it last week yeah (laughs) she also talks about how she's making money but it's not crazy money she's supporting her whole family but Nickelodeon did not pay their stars well and her mom is always like they pay you way better on a network show and then also again they don't do residuals what is that does anybody work for Nickelodeon and can secretly privately DM us anonymously and explain how the fuck they get away with that She's also being allowed to eat a little bit more, but she suspects it's because they're on set so often that it would look weird if she's not eating when her co-stars are eating. And at this point, she's starting to have a lot of negative emotion well up within her. And at this point, I don't think she knows why she's so angry, but she's realizing that the way she's treated is deeply fucked. I think it starts to come out on her. She says, I'm so unimpressed by people, even irritated by them, at times even disgusted by them. I don't know exactly when this happened, but I know it's a relatively recent switch and I know fame had something to do with it. I'm tired of people approaching me like they own me, like I owe them something. I didn't choose this life. Mom did. She talks about being seen out in public and how much she hates being recognized. And she also talks about how her mom doesn't seem to understand that 
this isn't a life forever. She's not about to become Angelina Jolie. She says child stardom is a trap, a dead end. And I can see that even if mommy can't. She says the transition from child stardom to legitimate career as an adult in the entertainment industry is a notoriously tough one, even for young actors blessed with roles in credible films and credible directors. For kids who start out in kids TV, it's a career death sentence. There's something about that one-dimensional, overly glossy image combined with the extent of public recognition of that image that makes it nearly impossible to overcome. Fame has put a wedge between mom and me that I didn't think was possible. She wanted this and I wanted her to have it and I wanted her to be happy. But now that I have it, I realize she's happy and I'm not. Her happiness came at the cost of mine. I feel robbed and exploited. Sometimes I look at her and I just hate her. And then I hate myself for feeling that. And I tell myself I'm ungrateful. I'm worthless without her. She's everything to me. Then I swallow the feeling I wish I hadn't had and tell her I love you so much, Nani Mommy. And I move on pretending that it never happened. I've pretended for my job for so long and for my mom for so long. And now I'm starting to think that I'm pretending for myself too. So then she gets her period, which is because of the way she's clinging to staying a kid, a very traumatic experience for her. And once again, she has this moment of this door of womanhood is open and she's like, all right, in order to stay on the other side of this doorway, I have to eat less. Tomorrow, there won't be any 2% milk or honeycomb or smart ones. I've been slacking. The slacking needs to stop. I need to get back to my anorexia. I need to be a kid again. Then she becomes a country singer. She says it's just what everyone was doing during the 2007 writer's strike. They were like, all right, well, if you were an actor, there's no acting right now. So you're a singer. Her manager was also Hillary Duff's manager. And she was like, that bitch can't sing. And she hit platinum twice. So why don't you give it a shot? And I do feel like, yeah, why not? Why not? (laughs) What if CNBC took off and then I tried to become a country singer? I would not support you. I would support you in almost anything you want to do. I really respect you and your abilities. But if you tried to become a country singer, I would not support that. Fair enough. The (laughs) rift begins, you guys. You saw it here first. Jesus and Miro. (laughs) So at the same time as her country career is, I guess you could say taking off, but at the same time she's dabbling in country music, her mom's cancer comes back. So she's supposed to go on this tour to launch some of her songs and to sort of drum up some iCarly excitement for her country career. And her mom can't go because she has chemo. And it's her first time being away from her mom for more than hours. And she's like, well, of course, I'm not going to go on a tour when my mom's getting chemo at home. And her mom says, Nat, you have to go on this tour. Don't talk crazy like that, okay? You scare me when you talk like that. You have to go on this tour no matter what, all right? You're going to be a country music star. Okay. Mom goes back to crying and I go back to hugging her. So on this tour is her first time alone. And she feels guilty for not being with her mom. But she says, this enjoying myself part of, of me feels fresh and new and exhilarating. I feel free. I'm even able to shower myself. And it's the first time in her life she's been alone and she like loves it, but she feels so guilty for how much she loves it. And of course, without her mom there, she starts to eat and binge. And she says, the fullness I feel after my meals is nice and new to me, but it's immediately usurped by a deep sense of guilt. Guilt that this is not what mom would want, that mom would be disappointed in me. The guilt drives me to eat more boxes of cheeses and store-bought cookies and pieces of candy or fruit roll-ups or whatever goodies are on the bus. Sometimes until my stomach aches and feels like it's about to burst, I go to bed unable to sleep on my stomach because I'm so overstuffed. I weigh myself in the hotel rooms that have scales in them and the number keeps climbing, climbing, climbing. I'm horrified with every pound gained, but also feel unable to stop. I've been starving myself for years and now my body is begging for me to stuff myself. So on this tour, she also meets a boy. It's her first time really being interested in someone because all of her romantic experience has been on set, like for the cameras. And so she has a crush on this guy. He likes her back. They end up kissing. She drops the nugget that she is 18 and he's 27. And the thing is, she's not just 18. She is like the most sheltered, a truly like a homeschool Mormon. I don't know how years on the set of iCarly didn't teach her a couple of things, but she is truly so sexually inexperienced and unaware. 
So she says he kisses her and she doesn't know that if she likes him and she doesn't think she does, but she likes being kissed. And she's like, my vagina feels weird. And when I touch it, it's wet and I'm grossed out by that. So I take a shower because I think something's wrong with me. Like she doesn't know anything. Basic mechanics of human sexuality. And so when you think about like a 27 year old man, here's this quote unquote country star who is a TV star. She's just so innocent and young and immature. And to be attracted to that is like so disgusting because he clearly was just going after her and trying to take advantage of the fact that she was so vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, it's really horrifying and it's the first of several that she writes about. So then this leads right into a conversation, a dinner she had with Dan Snyder, the creator. They're at dinner together and he makes her drink alcohol. She'd never had it before. And he was like, the Victoria's kids get drunk together all the time. The iCarly kids are so wholesome. We need to give you guys a little edge. So here's her boss, an old adult man making her drink alcohol at dinner because She's trying to get the spinoff. Yeah, and she has to do it. He bullies her into it and he keeps saying, it'll make you better. She says they pit the two shows against each other a lot to make them try harder for his approval. And he is so back and forth in his feedback. He says, are you excited to have your own show? And she says, sure. And he's like, well, that's it. You should be more excited. And she said, no, of course I'm excited. And he said, good, because I could give a new show to anyone you know, but I didn't choose anyone. I chose you. And she says, thank you. And he says, don't thank me. I chose you because you're talented. And she says, I'm confused. He said he could choose anyone, which made me not feel special. But now he's saying he chose me because I'm talented, which makes me feel special. This kind of confusion is normal around him. And I take a sip of water while I try to figure out what to say next. Then at the end of this dinner, he keeps testing her to see if she is grateful. He says, you're about to be a star in your own TV show for crying out loud. You know how many kids would kill for that opportunity? Every last one of them. I nod along. He reaches out and places his hand on my knee. I get goosebumps. You're cold, he says, concerned. I don't think that's why I got the goosebumps, but I agree. It's always best to agree with the creator. Here, take my jacket. He takes off his coat and drapes it around me. He pats my shoulders. The pat turns into a massage. Oof, you're so tense. Yeah. Anyway, what was I saying? He asks while he keeps massaging me. My shoulders do have a lot of knots in them, but I don't want the creator to be the one rubbing them out. I want to say something to tell him to stop, but I'm so scared of offending him. Oh, right. He says, remembering the train of thought. Every kid out there would kill for an opportunity like the one that you've got. You're very lucky, Jeanette. I know I say while he keeps rubbing me. And I do. I do know. I'm so lucky. Cute Lucky by Britney Spears. <sighs> so then she decides to get her own apartment. She's 18 years old now. She's got money of her own. And because her mom is very sick, she can't keep driving her to LA. I guess she had been living with her parents an hour north of LA where she's from. And at this point, her mom was going to chemo so often and had so many appointments that she just needed to be close by. So they get her an apartment, I assume in the Oakwoods. Yeah. And they also get a PA from iCarly to drive her back and forth because Jeanette's not allowed to learn to drive because her mom won't let her. And she's like, I can live on my own. I can handle it. I went on tour alone. I can shower myself. And her mom's like, yeah, but your hair looked greasy on tour. I saw pictures. Finally, she's so excited to get her own apartment. Her parents move her in. It's fully furnished already. And the day of, her mom is very weak and in a wheelchair. And her dad carries her up the stairs, puts the mom on the couch. And the mom hands her a little gift. And she says she starts hating her mom because her mom is just so desperate to like stop them from separating. And she's trying so hard to be sweet. And she's always coming at her doe-eyed. And she's like, I got you a little gift. Do you like it? And she's, so she's like, well, maybe we could watch this movie I got you after you unpack. Oh, okay, that'll be great. Yeah, mom says, removing her hat to scratch her bald head. And then um, I was thinking, I don't have chemo tomorrow, so I could spend the night, you know, if you want. She looks at me doe-eyed, wringing her hands nervously. I immediately know what this is. This is not mom spending the night. This is mom spending every night for the foreseeable future. This is mom moving in. I don't want her to spend the night. Sure, you can spend the night, I say. And I continue to say it every night for the next three months until eventually she doesn't even ask anymore. She just expects it. This is not my first ever solo apartment. This is our apartment. We are roommates. Then she starts 
seeing someone. So she gets a crush on one of the writers from iCarly who has a girlfriend and is 32. 32. She's 18. So they have plans to sort of secretly meet up and she has to figure out a way to have her mom not sleep over. And so she says she's having a sleepover with Miranda and her mom knows something's up and flips out. She says, you're lying to me, you liar. I'm going to find out what's going on. Mark my words, you filthy lying whore. And you better bet your ass off. I'll be able to sniff out the lies on you tomorrow when you come back. She says dramatically, it's obvious to me how much mom wants to be an actress. Right, Mark? Mom whips her head around to my dad who has been there the whole time, not saying a word as usual. He nods quickly, scared of her wrath, fed up. I grab my backpack and start to head out. I'm going to figure out what you're up to, you liar. She runs and she meets up with her boyfriend. This is her first ever official sleepover. He had just broken up with his girlfriend. He'd been with her for five years and they're finally together. Jeanette wanted this one romantic first date with her first boyfriend. He's hammered. So fucked up drunk. And she's like worried in the car driving with him. She had rented for them this hotel room so they could be alone together. He gets in and he just starts crying. What have I done? What have I done? We were together for five years. Five years. We just moved in together. We were going to get married. I lie down next to him and hug him. I'm the big spoon. He rattles on about his regret. And then he goes, you won't even have sex with me. And she's like, it's true. I won't have sex with him. Even though my family stopped going to church, there are still plenty of rules. And she just isn't. I mean, obviously she has a lot of trauma. She's not ready. So then he says, well, will you at least just give me a blowjob right now? And she was like, no, I don't want to. She's like, we could make out. And he goes, I don't want to make out. I'm 32 years old. And so then she does give him a blowjob and she doesn't know how. She asks how. And he was like, ew. So she does it and he finishes. And then she goes, something came out. Oh my God, something just came out. Yeah, it's come. Joe looks at me with a dull annoyance. What's come? Joe turns on his side, facing away from me and clutches a pillow tight to his chest. He takes long breath. What have I done? He asks. Yeah, Joe, what did what? you fucking do? Shut the fuck up, Joe. I'll kill you. He's a 32-year-old man who just took advantage of an 18-year-old girl and he's crying. You fucking psycho. Can I say something though? If I had been the girlfriend that got dumped for Jeanette McCurdy, I would have been like, good to know. Yeah, but I also feel like I could see how she'd be like, oh, that bitch. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he would have hated them both, maybe. Yeah. I think if I had read this book and seen how 100% predatory dating this woman was, dating this new young woman, and realizing how innocent and unaware and kind of new to the world she was and how it wasn't some siren that he couldn't ignore. It was truly just a vulnerable child that he 100% took advantage of without a doubt. I would be so happy that that man left me because... You'd be like, oh, I can't believe I spent five years with a man that that was that awful. Yeah. If a man ended something that he was happy in just so that he could go take advantage of some like rich young TV star, I'd be like, thank God I did not have children with him. What an awful to the core person. Evil. They date for one full year in secret, which is very hard because she's living with her mom. She says, sure, 50% of the time things are chaotic and tumultuous. Joe's drunk and I'm hysterical. Joe's upset that I'm too possessive and I'm upset that Joe's gotten back into debt three weeks after I paid it off for him. But the other 50% of the time, things are great. Oy, 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 oy. As I've said, it shouldn't be close. If you are like, I don't know if we have as many bad days as if we have good ones. Like it, it shouldn't be close. Especially when you're 18. Especially when you're 18. Especially when he's an adult man. Especially when he's drinking all the time. And especially when you're paying all his debts off for him. Jesus. Anyway, so then they go on a trip to Hawaii. Paparazzi photos them leak. The mom finds out about them together. She loses her mind. It like creates even further of a rift. So she says Joe and fame have just spread spread their relationship quite thin. Her mom freaks out and sends some of the nastiest emails I've ever seen just screaming at her. And when Jeanette finally gets back, she's scared to deal with her mom, but she's desperate to explain herself and smooth things over. And she says when her and her mom finally meet at like a Panda Express, a Panda Express, her mom doesn't even bring Joe up. It just goes unspoken for the rest of their lives. Instead, she says, Jeanette, will you sing the wing beneath my wings at my funeral? And she becomes obsessed with making Jeanette practice enough 
to sing that song on her funeral. And that's all she'll talk about. It was just so manipulative and morbid. So then the mom slips into a coma. So she has a seizure. She's in a coma. Around this time, iCarly ends. Everyone's sad. And I think one of her biggest worries is that her and Miranda's friendship will dissolve since they were friends because of the show. And I don't think Jeanette has any experience or examples of friendships existing outside of a certain work environment. But I can attest that their friendship did not end because the show ended. They end up staying friends for quite a few years and then they do eventually drift apart. But I feel like they'll be friends again if they want to be. She does finally break up with Joe because her mom is dying and she's like, I just can't be with you while she's dying. But mostly she's like, yeah, that was an excuse. I was just repulsed by him. So I was glad that she got out of that. Yeah, me too. She, like every celebrity, has a horrific story of a nurse coming up to her and saying, are you, the nurse asks, if it hadn't already happened 25 times at this hospital, I'd be shocked someone had the audacity to ask if I'm Sam Puckett while I'm sitting across from my dying mother. Her mom is a frail, withering away woman, bald from cancer treatments, in a coma, and this nurse has the audacity to ask for a photo. Yeah, even after she goes, no, it's not me. And she goes, well, can I take a photo anyway? My niece will never believe how much you look like her insane. If you're a nurse, I beg you to refrain. I have to say, if there's one piece of compassion I felt for celebrities, I do think they should get like a no-fly zone in hospitals while people are literally dying. Anyway, so her mom actually does come out of the coma, but is not well. Like she's not technically in a coma, but she's not there. I think this is like an experience known to anyone who's suffered loss. You know, there's a year where just every day they're preparing for the worst. And every time it gets bad, they think, well, this is it. And then it'll never be good again. But you never know when the end is actually here. Right. And so then her friend is like, do you want to just go to San Francisco with me? And she's like, does my mom have three days? And they're like, yes. So she goes to San Francisco. And this is where she gets drunk for the first time. And the feeling of having her feelings go away is intoxicating. They take three or four shots straight in a row and she gets very drunk. And the next morning she wakes up and is like, that was incredible. I can't wait to do it again. And she ends up taking multiple shots every night for three straight weeks. And she says, and my God, am I looking forward to it? I can't believe I've waited so long to get drunk. It's an incredible one of a kind feeling. When I'm drunk, all of my worries disappear. Hating my body, the shame I feel about my eating habits, coping with my mother dying, starring in a show. I'm humiliated to be a part of. It all goes away. When I'm drunk, I'm less anxious, less inhibited less worried about what mom would want or think of me. In fact, when I'm drunk, the voice of mom judging me evaporates completely. I can't wait for tonight. So at this point, she's in production on Sam and Cat, and she hates it. She hates that she's a part of the show. She's embarrassed by the slapsticky-ness of the comedy. I think she hates being only known as Sam Puckett. She says, I'm becoming an angry person with no tolerance for anyone. I'm aware of this shift and yet have no desire to change it. If anything, I want it. It's armor. It's easier to be angry than to feel the pain underneath. I mean, she's like going through the motions. She buys this house. She fucking hates this house. She buys a house that she thinks is turnkey ready. The first night there, a pipe explodes and it turns out the entire foundation is fucked. (laughs) So she's just like constantly having to completely gut renovate her home that she's also living in. She's not in a good place. She hates her job. Her mom is dying. She's like dating a couple random guys and she talks about how it's actually quite freeing to not love someone, which is a sad thing. Yeah, she lives in fear of having that hormonal thing that she's heard women get where you have sex with a man and fall in love with him and she does not want that experience. So she talks about this guy she's dating at a time when she gets the text from her dad that he's like, I think this is that you have to come now. And she doesn't really believe him. Nevertheless, he insists. And so she gets on a plane. She skips some big Nickelodeon thing and she goes... And she says she's texting this guy. She says, hey, I'm really sorry. I can't do this right now. My mom's going to die and I need some time to just be alone. Hope you can understand. He goes, don't say that, boo. Your mom's not going to die. I roll my eyes. I've told him 12 times that my mom's dying of cancer, but he acts like she has a sprained ankle. 
He has no concept of loss. I feel like the world is divided into two types of people, people who know loss and people who don't. And whenever I encounter someone who doesn't, I disregard them. So then of course her mom dies like that hour. Yeah. She says, I go back to my text tab and click on the chain with the current guy. I look at his last text. Don't say that boo. Your mom's not going to die. I text him back. She just did. So the family's watches her die. And I guess they're all numb. And the first thing they do is they go to the mall and Jeanette's like, well, I needed a new phone case. So we go to the Apple store. So at this point, the book divides into the second half, which is after. So the whole book is organized around before and after her mom died. And so the first night after her mom died, she goes back home, texts all of her friends and says, I can't be alone tonight. I need you guys to come over. They all come over. She gets super drunk. They go out to a sushi place and she hasn't eaten in weeks. She's so small and she's been restricting so hard. And suddenly she's drunk and she's like, I can't control myself anymore. I need to eat. And she just orders everything. And she says she gets an extra bottle of sake and like everything on the menu. And she just gorges herself. So she has tried to throw up her food before and been unable to. But in this moment, she's like, I'm just going to make it happen. She goes up to the bathroom. She purges everything she just ate. And she's like, this is a new beginning. So what if I fucked up and ate? So what if I failed? So fucking what? All I have to do is shove my fingers down my throat and watch my mistake be undone. This is the start of something good. There's a lot happening at once during this part of the book. The next heap of the book happens within like two or three months. So on Sam and Kat, she is like deeply resentful of Ariana Grande, which she explains in a way that doesn't put the blame on Ariana Grande. She's being told constantly, like, thanks for being such a good sport. Thanks for being such a good sport. And I know why I'm hearing this phrase so often. It's because my co-star Ariana Grande is a burgeoning pop star who misses work regularly to go to sing at awards shows, record new songs and do press for her upcoming album while I stay back and angrily hold down the fort. I understand on a surface level why she has to miss work. But at the same time, I don't understand why she's allowed to. I booked two features during iCarly that I had to turn down because of the iCarly team wouldn't write me out of the episodes to go shoot them. I'm a good sport. I'm a good egg. I'm the good one. The one who's not difficult, the teacher's pet. But now I'm over it. I've become a better person and I'm resigned to the fact I can't change my circumstances. So why try to change who I've become as a result of them? I'm done being a good sport. So she is like frustrated and she keeps saying like, well, I guess to be in the movie, they would have had to write me out of a bunch of episodes. And Ariana only takes like rehearsal days off and does half shooting days. And then at some point she takes an entire week off. And the way they get around it is they say that Ariana was trapped in a box for the whole episode. And she's like, I can't fucking be in a movie. And yet here I am acting with a box while Ariana gets to sing at the BBLs. What is it? (laughs) The BBL Awards. (laughs) Who's got the best butt? She says what finally undid me was when Ariana came whistle toning in with excitement because she had just spent the previous evening playing charades at Tom Hanks's house. That was the moment I broke. I couldn't take it anymore. Music performances and magazine covers, whatever, I'll get over it. But playing a family game at a National Treasure two-time Academy Award winner and six-time nominee Tom Hanks's house, I'm done. So at this point in her life, she's just drinking all the time. She's kind of having casual flings. She's never had sex to this day but she is like going out a lot and she's decided she's getting ready to. So she's met this one guy. She thinks she really likes him. She decides, all right, I'll probably end up having sex with him eventually. Like we'll make out tonight and in a couple of weeks I'll be ready. And so she goes to this party and she's drinking a lot. She's very near blackout drunk. Two hours later, we were back in my place. Liam dropped Colton off on the way. It was just the two of us. And Liam throws me onto the bed and takes off my copper dress. I'm dizzy. The room is spinning. I'm wasted. I'm confused. Where the fuck am I? What's happening? I finally ask. I'm having sex with you, Liam says, in a tone that nauseates me. It's halfway to a baby voice with the same inflection as what a baby voice would do, but without jumping up an octave. I kind of want to stop. This is not at all how I intended to lose my virginity. I never expected it would happen tonight. I thought tonight would be a night all about a magical first kiss and the virginity thing would be done in a week or two. I thought I'd have time to mentally and emotionally prepare. But I also kind of want to keep going. Who cares about the rituals and preparation? If anything, I'm relieved to be getting my virginity over with. Fuck it, I say nothing. I squint my eyes and try to ground myself. 
At this point in time, she is really numb to a lot of things. She's just kind of got this fucking attitude about almost everything. I mean, in this sentence, she says, I try to ground myself. And it's about that moment where the room is literally spinning for her. But I think that she has literally no ground beneath her at all. Like her entire foundation is around making her mom happy. And now that her mom is dead, she has no foundation. And so the one thing keeping her at work is the only thing she cared about. She hates the show. She's so humiliated by it. She feels humiliated by the content and also humiliated by the way she's treated compared to Ariana. But she was promised the opportunity to direct a single episode. That was the one thing she fought for in her contract. And so they're getting nearer to the end of the show and she's waiting and waiting for her episode when she gets to direct. And every time they give it to her, the next week it's been postponed and they're like, it can't be worked. So finally she gets the schedule of all the episodes through the end of the season and she looks down at director's And her name has been removed from the last episode that she was supposed to direct. She's so upset. She's bursting in tears. When she finally goes to act, she has a panic attack and collapses. Finally, one of the producers comes in and he's like, I know you're disappointed. You've made it clear that you're disappointed, but we appreciate you being a good sport. And she was like, what the fuck is going on though? They just flat out tell her, we wanted you to do this. People were vouching for you, but someone very powerful was vouching against you so aggressively that we had to say no. They said they would quit the show if you directed and we can't afford that. So we had to remove you from the slate. I just want you to know that it's not your fault. Who was it? Was it Dan Schneider? It couldn't have possibly been Ariana Grande. Like, no, I can't imagine Ariana would have held that away from somebody. It had to have been Dan Schneider. Now. Especially because they've proven they can write Ariana out of the show. <laughs> I also say at this point in time too, Dan Schneider had been taken off of set. There had been so many harassment cases against him. He was no longer allowed to directly interact with actors. And so he had to be in a separate room with like all these monitors where we'd watch everything. And then a PA would go back and forth and run across the entire soundstage giving his notes. Which why walkie talkies weren't, I guess they needed someone to like distill his tone. So she says after this, she's so fucking mad. She doesn't give a shit about anything that she's just like going through the motions doing as little as she possibly can just waiting for the time to be up. She says there's 20 days, four episodes left. When she gets the call from her agent manager, the whole gang, everyone gets on the phone and they say, there's not going to be a season three. And she's like, fucking rad. And they go, yeah. And as a thank you gift, manager one repeats, they're giving you $300,000. And the only thing they want you to do is never talk publicly about your experience at Nickelodeon, specifically related to the creator. She says, no. No, I say immediately, a long pause. No, they ask. They're like, it's free money. And she goes, no, it's not. It's not free money. It feels like hush money. And they're like, well, no. Through the years, I've slowly learned that the entertainment business is one where what's being said is rarely what's being talked about. This way of operating not only disagrees with me, but seems genuinely impossible for me to adapt to. And so they keep trying to push it on her and she just refuses to take it. And they're just like, okay. I'm so proud of her. And she even has the realization of like, I'm so proud of myself for being so morally superior. And then she's like, what the fuck have I done? Should I have said yes? And it's like, yeah, you're allowed to have that moment of being like, damn, $300,000 is a lot of money. But she said no. And she got to write about the creator a little bit at whatever level she's allowed to. And I, I don't know. I'm very impressed. She's like 20. I mean, she never was in it for like all the fame and all the money. Like it is a different type of person. That's the thing. It's like, she doesn't like any of the things money has gotten her. The show has been over for three and a half weeks. And the story in the press is that it ended because I was upset that my co-star was getting paid more than me, which is upsetting to me because it's untrue. My manager told me it was canceled because of a sexual harassment claim against one of our producers. That has to be Dan Schneider. Of course. She's just frustrated and she's mad and she hates being known as Sam Puckett. And she just hates that this is her life. And she goes, I'm aware enough to know how fucking annoying and whiny this all sounds. Millions of people dream of being famous and here I am with fame and hating it. 
I somehow feel entitled to my hatred since I was not the one who dreamed of being famous. Mom was. Mom pushed this on me. I'm allowed to hate someone else's dream, even if it's my reality. You are. And I have to say, as people who have been like critical of indulgent memoirs, this one doesn't read indulgent. No. She didn't have to add that. I, I appreciate that she did. And I think the type of person who would want to add that is the type of person who would be self-aware enough to write a good memoir. But I am like, if you were upset, that's allowed. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I do think pushing someone into child stardom, it's not your fault. You didn't want it. Yeah. And a lot of bad things were happening to you. A lot of really bad things. We get to another year, another birthday. This is her first birthday since her mom passed away. A friend comes out with a birthday cake and she's like, what do I even wish for? Like, first of all, I hate that there's cake here because she's in the throes of an eating disorder. And she says, my entire life's purpose, keeping mom alive and happy was for nothing. All those years I spent focusing on her, all the time I spent orienting my every thought and action towards what I thought would please her most were pointless because now she's gone. So her next career move is she's given this role in a Netflix show called something. It was some Netflix show that no one ever heard of. And it turned out to be like a Canadian TV show that was being distributed by Netflix in America. She read the script and she's like, I think the script sucks. I don't think I should take it. And they're like, well, at least it's not Nickelodeon. She's like, okay, I'll do it. So she goes and she finds out that in fact, it's not a Netflix show. It's just some rando show and it's very low budget and she's miserable. But then on day two, there's an AD on set who's very hot and Italian and named Steven. And she's like, actually, maybe I love this shitty little TV show. Fun. And they end up having a fling throughout the entire production. It's the first time she's ever had sex and enjoyed it. And she like really likes him. They really hit it off. And the day the shoot ends, he asks her to be his girlfriend and she's just thrilled. And... Everyone should be having good sex. Everyone should be aware of what they like in the bedroom. And I think that it shouldn't take a relationship to show you what brings you pleasure. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy stories designed by women for women to put you in the mood, to put you in the mood with a partner, by yourself, whatever you need, whether it's your summer fantasy, whether it is something to just help you alleviate some anxiety. New content is released every single week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can find something new to explore. Dipsy also has sleep stories, wellness sessions, and written stories. If you like to see your sexy, sexy fantasies on paper, it's your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, or keep things up with a partner. Can I say... I'm liking the written stories. I love it down on paper. I love published work of sexiness. I like an audible moment because I can close my eyes and just like be immersed in the experience. It's hard for me to keep my eyes straight. Do you know what I mean? I'm not trying to like (laughs) lose my place in line. (laughs) I get that. But for whatever works for you, Dipsy has got it. For listeners of this show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of Full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm, D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash worm. Yeah. So he comes to visit her in Los Angeles. She's really excited about the fact that it wasn't just a show fling, that their feelings were real. She's never felt this way about anyone before. And he makes her feel so like comfortable with herself, which she's never felt before. So he comes to visit her in Los Angeles. And after the first day of being there, he's in her home and comes out of the bathroom and is like, why was there vomit all over the toilet? Do you have a problem? She's like, no, no, no. I just have like a hobby. Can I say the way that she spins it back on him? I'm like, fair enough. And she's like, it's just something I do. Like the way that you smoke cigarettes. And he's like, well, I'm going to quit cigarettes. And she's like, okay, I'm going to quit this later. (laughs) And he basically says, I won't date you unless you go get help. And she loves him so much. She's like, fine, I'll go to therapy. So she gets a therapist slash life coach, which is something I am skeptical of. 
But I guess this whole situation was skeptical because she wasn't going for herself. She was going for him. And Laura says, the life coach says, day one, this won't work if you don't want to change for yourself. So she's meeting with this life coach, therapist, Laura. They're meeting five times a week. Plus they're like chatting on weekends and stuff. And this is where we really start to see the extent of how bad Jeanette's eating disorder and drinking problem has gotten in her grief. They pull together the data and she says, I'm binging and purging five to 10 times a day and drinking at least eight or nine shots of hard liquor at night. The first three weeks with Laura have shown me just how dark my situation is, just how much of a failure I've become. This all culminates in on week four of their five sessions a week schedule. She has her first red carpet event. She's going to a Nickelodeon event and she knows that this is a real trigger for her, that the pressure and expectations of these events will trigger her purging and binging. So she brings Laura with her. So Laura has spent the whole day with her, going to lunch with her, making sure she ate beforehand. She said she watched and forced Jeanette to eat at least 10 bites before they left. And so Jeanette is very much on edge because she hasn't been able to purge all day. And that's her emotional release and her crutch. And so she goes on, she presents. And as she's coming off, she feels a panic attack coming on. And so she goes to the buffet and she sees all these sliders and she starts just binging on sliders. And Laura who had been distracted with Adam Sandler in the back and getting googly eyes at Angelina Jolie, realizes what's happening, comes over and removes her from the situation where Jeanette then goes into the car and has like an absolute breakdown. And Laura goes, this is what healing looks like. And Jeanette's just like, shut the fuck up. Jeanette, I think, likes Laura, but she was like, she just was not the right helper for me at that point. I do think Laura cracked open a window. I think Laura like created the understanding within Jeanette that, eventually she would need help. Like you can't have help unless you want it. And I don't think she wanted it at that time. But I do think Laura was a good instigator in her being like, my problems are bigger than I thought they were. A few weeks later, Jeanette shows up to a session and is so proud of herself because she hasn't purged in one full day and she didn't think she could ever do it. And she comes and she's like, all right, aced the test. And instead, Laura's like, well, now we need to look at your childhood because we need to figure out what caused this pattern of behavior emotionally. And Jeanette's like, no, my childhood was pretty good, actually. And she goes, I didn't have an alcoholic dad. My brothers didn't torture me when my parents weren't home. We were poor. Sure, we lived in a hoarder house, yes. And mom had cancer when I was very little, which was very scary. But otherwise, things are fine. I relate this to Laura, gently suggesting in my tone that I refuse to play the game of boo-hoo, my childhood was tough. So then she keeps being like, well, tell me more about your mom. And so they really start digging in. She says, can you talk about a time where you were first aware of your weight or your body in a significant way. And she says, well, when I was 11, I was concerned about getting boobs. So my mom taught me about calorie restriction to help me out. So Laura presses on to help you out. And she says, well, yes, I was concerned about boobs. And so my mom did me a solid and taught me about how to keep my body small. And she's like, plus it helped me get cast. And Laura goes, Jeanette, what you're describing is really unhealthy. Your mother essentially condoned your anorexia, encouraged it. She taught it to you. That's abuse. My mind flashes back to the first time I ever heard the word anorexia when I was sitting on the paper cover table in room five at Dr. Tran's office. Suddenly, I feel like that little 11-year-old girl who's scared and uncertain and confused. And so she basically like almost starts to cry and leaves. She just gets up and leaves. She breaks up with Laura that night. And then Stephen is on his way back from a project he'd been working on in Atlanta. And she's like, how am I going to tell Stephen that I've quit therapy because I was here to keep him? Yeah, the whole time this was going on, Stephen was in Atlanta. Stephen's on his way back. She's like trying to gather the courage to tell him that she's quit therapy, hoping that he'll stay with her. He gets back and drops his bombshell that he has decided to become religious because he watched a Netflix series called God's Not Dead. And so he's like, I want to go to church again. I think we should find church. And she's like, awesome. I quit therapy. And he's like, dope. 
He says, you don't need therapy, not if you have Jesus. So she's like, all right, well, I guess I'll count it as a win though. So they start like church hopping. She really indulges. They even try Scientology. Then she finds out that now that he's very religious, he doesn't think they should be having sex anymore. Yeah, and she's pretty upset with that because she's like, well, having sex with him is the only time that I like forget about myself. So then she goes to lunch with her dad, who has been more proactive in their relationship since the mom died, but is still not a significant part of her life. Yeah. And apparently has a new girlfriend who was the mom's, mom's one and only friend. <laughs> and it was like her frenemy. Jeanette said she has memories of her growing up, of her always talking about what a bitch Karen was, but also like it was the only woman she ever got lunch with in her life. She goes to lunch with her dad. She could tell that he's getting ready for an announcement. And she's like, ah, oh, him and Karen are probably gonna get married or some yeah. stupid shit. Yeah. It's been one year. And she's like, honestly, we're not okay with the fact that they're going to get married, but whatever. Who am I to judge? I can't deal with it. So he sits her down to give her this big announcement. And finally he blurts it out. Dustin, Scotty, and you are not my biological children. Huh? I'm shocked. I feel the color drain out of my face and I'm sure to, about to pass out. She then finds out that her and her two older brothers... So only the oldest brother, Marcus, is both of their parents' biological child. She also says at this point that like when she was 11, her dad got kicked out of the house for a while for watching porn, which is a sin. And after that, her mom never let Jeanette call him dad again. She only called him Mark her whole life. And now here she is finding out that he's never been her biological father. And that... She and her two older brothers are the product of a decade-long affair that her mom had with one man. And she's just like, do you know who it is? Like, do you know how long want? And he's like, I don't really know much except for that. Yeah, it's one dude. I know his name. I can give it to you. So, I mean, that does explain why the mom was obsessed with the dad cheating. It's always the cheaters who are worried about cheating. Anyway, I don't understand why the dad stayed, but... I mean, what is wrong with... The, like, this woman keeps having children with one other man and you're just still in a hoarder house while she's berating you and Sleeping like... Sleeping in a person-shaped hole in the hoarder bedroom? In the house that your parents own while you're supporting her parents? Like, what was wrong with him? Why have these children that you're not raising? Like, I want his memoir. What were you fucking thinking, Mark? That is the craziest Crazy. story. You give her the decency to wait till the day that she dies to then move on with her best friend. So then she goes home to Steven and she's like, I have got to talk to Steven about this. And he is acting weird. And so she is like, I have to talk to you about something. And he's like, I have to talk to you about something even bigger. And she's like, no, mine's bigger. You go first. He's like, mine's pretty big. And she's like, okay, we'll go. He says... I am Jesus Christ reincarnated. And she's like, I have a work event that I have to go to. So she's going to Australia to help promote Netflix. And she's just like, I really can't deal with this right now. I know I should call somebody about what's going on with him. But like, I'm sure he'll call his own parents and they'll figure out something's up. And I just have to go. So she gets on this flight to Australia. Obviously, she's in a bad place. So she's binging, purging, binging, purging. 10 or 50 times on the flight. On the plane, her tooth falls out. She like throws up her molar because her enamel was so weakened. So she's just like bleeding out the mouth. She says she finally lands in Australia. She gets in the Uber and he goes, hey, how's it going? The upbeat Uber driver asks. I look straight ahead, not answering the driver. How's it going? It's going fucking terribly. Mom lied my entire life about my biological father was. I'm caught in the undertow of bulimia. I'm going to have to do an entire press junket while missing a lower left molar and my boyfriend's schizophrenic. It could not be going any worse. And the Uber driver like notices she's silent. So he just turns up the radio and it's an Ariana Grande song, which I do think is like a perfect, <laughs> a really perfect moment. She does decide in this moment of I think we can finally call this kind of a rock bottom. And it, it's not like her actions led her here. It's just a crescendo of yeah. horrible life events. It seems like a lot of things came together to be like, wow, something has to change. Right. So she seeks out another therapist who specializes in eating disorders and begins to start seeing him very seriously. Her and Steven stay together. His parents, as she had hoped, did get a hold of him. They got him 
some psychiatric help. He's diagnosed with schizophrenia and he's put on lithium to help balance them out. And she says when they get together, it seems like he's able to laugh about it and be medicated and that it'll be okay. And so they stay together. He says, we're both working on our stuff now. We're going to be able to be there for each other. It's going to be so good. I nod. I believe him. And what ends up happening is he becomes hugely addicted to weed and is not there for her. And he keeps being like, well, it's the lithium. It makes me drowsy. But once they fix the amount I'm on, I'll be better. But it's like they fix it like 12 times. And she's like, I mean, yeah, it's the lithium. But it's also the fact that like you're smoking so much weed. He won't work. He says work is a waste of life. And she's putting in a lot of work with Jeff. She is doing the homework he gives her. She's really struggling through some difficult conversations and changing her thought patterns. And it's working. And like, even though she's supporting Steven, she is working on herself. She gets to the point where she's no longer technically a bulimic. She's just a person who exhibits bulimic behavior sometimes because there is like a medical threshold for the definition. And she says, I'm making strides in my bulimia recovery. I am no longer abusing my body to nearly the extent that I used to. I'm trying every day to face myself. The results vary, but the attempts are consistent. And I think that that's like a really sweet thought to give yourself credit for if you're struggling. That Listen, not every day is going to be a perfect day, but if every day you try or like intend to try, then that's huge. Yeah. Eventually the therapist gives her an article about codependency and she's like, oh, is me completely supporting financially my weed addicted boyfriend while I'm trying to save my own life a problem? And so they break up. And she also finds out the identity of her biological father. And so she and Miranda and her other friend Colton go to meet him. It turns out he did know that they existed, her and her brothers. But that when they were little, there was a big custody battle and mom said he was physically abusive. He assures me he wasn't. She won. I asked him if he knew mom died. He says, yes, he saw it on E! News. I think about what a strange sentence that is. So things start getting better. The last few pages are just about how things are getting better and she's putting in the work and not every day is perfect and it's not always better and there's ups and downs, but every day she gets closer and closer. She's really acknowledging the things in her life that don't serve her. So she has this big house that is causing all of these problems and it's constantly a source of stress. And her therapist is like, why do you live there then? Like, just don't. Mm -hmm. And so she sells her house and her Netflix show doesn't get picked up for another season. And so she's like, I don't want to keep auditioning. I don't want to act anymore. I don't like that. So yeah, she quits acting and she feels good about it. She goes, I want my life to be in my hands, not in eating disorders hands or casting directors or an agent's hands or my mom's hands. Mine. And so, you know, she walks through being asked to do the iCarly reboot. They offered her once again, quite a lot of money. I mean, at this point, I'm very curious to know the exact sum that she's turned down from Nickelodeon for various shut up or keep acting situations. She didn't want to be back under their thumb. And I hugely respect that. Yeah, Miranda even calls her. They had kind of fallen apart, but they're still in good terms. And when Miranda calls her and tries to beg her to do it, Miranda's like, I even got them to guarantee they give you as much money as they give me. I know, I say to Miranda, but there are things that are more important than money and my mental health and happiness fall under that category. There's a moment of silence. It's one of those rare moments when I feel like I didn't say too much or too little. I feel like I represented myself accurately and there's nothing I would change about the way I said it. I feel proud. We wrap up our conversation, promising to keep in touch and hang up. I head back home to finish dinner. And she says like she's going recovery so far is in some ways as difficult as the bulimia alcoholic ridden years, but difficult in a different way. I'm processing not only the grief of my mom's death, but the grief of a childhood, adolescence and young adulthood that I felt I had never been truly able to live for myself. It's difficult, but it's the kind of difficult I have pride in. Yeah. So she's come to the realization that her mom was an abusive narcissist, that like there was armor that she put up that like maybe she needed for a certain amount of time. And I think that like with every step she's ready to address more and more and she's able to take on more and more of her own understanding of her childhood and I think that she's doing a lot of really good work it ends with her visiting her mom's grave which her mom had made her promise to visit every single day of her whole life 
And she'd felt guilty for so long for not going all the time. And she's like, I had put my mom on a pedestal. And she says, now I realize my mom did not deserve her pedestal. She was a narcissist. She refused to admit she had any problems despite how destructive those problems were to our entire family. My mom emotionally, mentally, and physically abused me in ways that will forever impact me. She gave me breast and vaginal exams until I was 17 years old. When I was six years old, she pushed me into a career I didn't want. She taught me an eating disorder when I was 11 years old. She never told me my father was not my father. Her death left me with more questions than answers, more pain than healing, and many layers of grief. And she says, there's things I miss about her. I miss her pep talks. I miss her childlike spirit. I miss when she was happy. And she sometimes finds herself fantasizing about a life where her mom doesn't die. And her mom realizes all the mistakes she made. And she apologizes and they cry in each other's arms. But she's like, I've come to terms with the fact that that'll never happen. And it wouldn't have happened. And things would have been worse for me if she had stayed alive. She says, I don't cry. I stand up, wipe the dirt off my jeans and walk away. I know I'm not coming back. I really love that. There are two pull quotes on the front of this book. Gerard Carmichael says, impressively funny. <laughs> I know. And Lena Dunham says, an important cultural document. And I, if you had put me in a room and said, Gerard or Lena, who do you think you're going to agree with today? I would have been like, easy, easy peasy. And it wasn't so easy. This book was so fucking good and it was so compelling. And I have to say, it did live up to exactly what I had hoped it would live up to. Mm-hmm. I found it exciting to read, but also heartbreaking and honest and vulnerable. And I don't know, man, there was some fucking tragedy in here and I wish the best for her. And I think something, the honesty of the end of it, the honesty of the end of it, I think she takes responsibility to the extent of what she is responsible for, which is honestly not a lot, but it's there. Like there's the personal acknowledgement is there. Mm-hmm. Cause I do think sometimes that's another criticism we also often have is like, well, you're 30 now, what are you doing to make changes? And like, she's there, she's making the changes. She's doing the work. And it's a really impressive book. Yeah, it's worth a read. And Jeanette, good luck. I hope things get better. (laughs) This week on the Patreon, we have Callie Williams from Beyond the Blinds. She's coming in. We're doing more Hill stuff. We weren't able to get to it last week. We also will be watching the Shania Twain documentary and giving our hot takes on those. And just, you know, the general chat. Chitter chatter. Chitter chatter. So meet us there. Check out the wormhole. And we love you guys so much. Yeah. And I would love to thank our five-star reviewers. Thank you to... This is just a jumble of letters. I appreciate you, but you know I'm not a good reader, especially when there's not a vowel in sight. Thank you to Chris and Russo. I love you. So thank you to Sid Ken. You are the Ken to my Barbie. Thank you to Hot and Annoying. Baby, there is nothing better to be. Thank you... Emma Ma one two three exclamation point Emma Mia thank you for the review Violenciaga hell yeah baby want that label thank you to Kathy C Slug you are I would go to the aquarium to see you and you alone thank you to girl you don't know listen I feel like we know each other and I love you thank you to hi Claire and Ashley hi back. Thank you, Marcy Urena. Have Marcy. You are the best. Thank you, Miss Carly26. Listen, Jeanette doesn't miss iCarly, but I miss you. Thank you to Profcast. You are the number one prof in my book on Rate My Prof. <laughs> Thank you to Alma Pans, the cutest pans in town. Thank you to Madison Kuchar, not to be confused with Ashton, the number one Kuchar in my opinion. Thank you to Basil's Mama. 
you've raised a beautiful herb. Thank you, Call of the Disco Ball. I hope you find your disco ball this weekend. Whole Ash, you are all of the ash I need. This is two emojis. I think they're paper. I appreciate you on paper and off. Thank you to Ala Foley 6. I appreciate the follies. Emma Specht. I expect this is a beautiful review. Thank you to Mara QMQ. I have a Q and it's how did you leave such a great review? Thank you to Burn Burn. Baby, you're on fire. Thank you to C123Eh. I see you and I love you. And I think that's all for this week. Thank you guys. You're the best.